Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hello and welcome to another episode of Runners Connect Run to the Top Podcasts. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. I'm sure many of you have gotten into a really good training and racing cycle only to come down with an injury just before your goal race. And you do everything you can to treat the symptoms of your injury, but you can never seem to find the cause or make it really go away. Today we're sitting down with John Davis, our Runners Connect Head of Running Research. As the title would imply, John has done a great deal of research on a wide variety of running subjects, both on Runners Connect and his own website, runningwritings.com. A few of the things John and I discussed included the question he asked himself of why runners get injured, how stride frequency and hip strength could be the keys to solving your injury problems, and the concepts of aerobic and anaerobic threshold, what those terms mean and how to learn what they feel like and apply them to your own training. We'd like to thank John for his time today and wish him the best of luck in his training, racing, and coaching. All the resources that were mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash rc39. I hope you all can learn something from our chat with John. So without further ado, let's get started. John, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, who are you, where you're from, and a little bit of your running background. So yeah, I'm John Davis. I was born and raised in Eden Prairie. It's a little suburb of the Twin Cities here in Minnesota. Um, I went to high school at Eden Prairie High School. We had a pretty good cross-country pro- and track program there. And I later went to Carleton College, small liberal arts school, um, in southern Minnesota, uh, ran track and cross country there for four years, and uh, now I live in Minneapolis, and I am a writer and uh, track and cross country coach at Edina, which is another suburb in the area. Tell us a little bit, a bit about your coaching. Um, so, like I said, I coach at Edina High School. It's um, a decently sized suburban school, and um, I help out with the distance runners and track, and also the cross country program. Um, I'll be going into my second season uh, as an assistant track coach this spring. Um, we've had some pretty good success. We had a uh, couple distance runners do really well last track season, and then the guys uh, finished second in the state, and then they went to Nike Nationals and finished 10th there. Um, so it was pretty good pretty good last year, so we're hoping to continue that uh, this spring. That's pretty awesome. So what led you to start doing all the uh, the running research you do on your website and for Runners Connect? So I've been a runner for quite a long time, pretty much all of high school um, uh, and college. And so I, I had a pretty successful and like relatively injury-free high school career. But once I got to college, I started having issues with um, injuries and overtraining and that kind of stuff. And so I started looking into like, well, why am I getting injured? Why am uh, why am I overtrained? Why am I not improving? And uh, that led me to read more about like. What what do other people what what's causing other people to get injured? What's causing other people to not improve in their running? Um, so that's kind of I kind of got started with that. I started my website, Running Writings, as just to, to have a place to put um, my thoughts and what I'd learned about injuries, um, uh, put it online somewhere, and uh, it's kind of grown now into a resource for for runners looking to improve or to get healthy. That's certainly why I found it a few years ago. So in all the research you've done, has there been a particular person or article you've read that, or several that have uh, particularly influenced you? Um, I can definitely think of a few research groups at different universities. 
Um, there's a research group that was at the University of Delaware for a while that's done a lot of work on the biomechanics of injury. So what kind of stride patterns uh, are associated with, um, say, IT band syndrome or tubular stress fractures or patellofemoral pain syndrome. We call that runner's knee. Um, there's another group at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which has done some pretty interesting work on stride frequency, which is something that I like to harp on a lot. Um, both on my website and with the runners, the high schoolers that I coach. Um, and a few other groups in uh, like the East Coast or uh, out in England or California. There's uh, What's really cool about this is research going on everywhere um, about running, running injuries and prevention and treatment and that sort of thing. So did the research lead to you wanting to be a coach or is that something you've always wanted to do or did they kind of go hand in hand? I think um, I think the coaching aspect came more from from wanting to help other runners out and help other runners avoid the kind of problems that uh, that I've had in my own running. Um, and the research I think has been uh, a useful adjunct or, or like supplement to um, what I've learned from experience and what I've learned from researching some of the like more of like the history of coaching and the history of coaching philosophies. Um, but the research definitely informs what how I how I train people and how I especially how I treat prevent injuries. So, what are a few key points from your from your research and your own running that you uh, that really influence your coaching now? Well, I think the biggest in terms of improvement, I'm I'm very much focused on long term development, um, especially you know because I coach at the high school level. Uh, I work with a lot of pretty talented. 14, 15, 16-year-olds, and I'm mostly interested in getting them to run well like next year, the year after, not so much trying to squeeze out every last ounce of performance in the next three weeks. Um, so long-term development is very big, and how, how we achieve that is with a, a focus on aerobic fitness. So we do a lot of what you might call like long, strong running. We do a lot of threshold stuff. Um, we do a lot of uh, we do more mileage than a lot of other programs, but not as much intensity. So when you say threshold, what do you mean by that? So what I mean is if you start running really slow and then you gradually pick the pace up, you will you can move through a large range of paces and feel pretty good. Um, and then there is sort of a point where you, the, the effort starts to ramp up more as you keep increasing the pace. And we can, and we can do like uh, VO2 max tests or or uh, blood lactate tests to determine this scientifically. But basically, threshold is a speed, and when I say threshold, I mean uh, anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold. There's also the aerobic threshold, which is um, another another thing that we focus on in training, that I focus on in my own training, um, and that I talk about in my book. But we can quantify um, these these points at which your your effort level begins to sharply ramp up as you try to push beyond a certain pace. And so the aerobic threshold, that's maybe like your theoretical marathon pace. That's at about 85% of your 5K pace. Um, your anaerobic threshold, that might be your like 10-mile race pace. Um, that's at roughly 92% of your 5K pace for most people um, if, you're, if you're looking for a number. Where, does the, where do those numbers come from? So again, you, mostly this just comes from like physiology tests of putting someone on a treadmill, looking at how their blood lactate responds over time um, as we increase the pace. And then we know, like from a recent race performance or from a VO2 max test, we know um, 
we have like an absolute uh, indicator of what their what their fitness is, and then we can determine like okay, these points, these thresholds appear like maybe this far back and this far back um, from the from our 5k pace or from our VO2 max pace. I mean, again, it's not you know it's not precise. Your real threshold might be 91 percent, 93 percent, but it's not really so important to run exactly the number as it is to get the feeling, and so. Looking up your threshold in a chart or in a calculator or something um, can be helpful, but ultimately it's about it's really about a feeling. That's interesting. How did you have you? Is this something you've come to figure out the hard way in your own running? Oh, I mean, I I have done a lot of reading. This is not I didn't invent threshold, not even close. Um, so like uh, Daniel's running formula, I'm sure a lot of people have heard of that. Um, Jack Daniels is very big on threshold training. Um, there's also another coach named John Kellogg, whose stuff I've read a lot of. Um, Arthur Lydiard is very famous for um, bringing aerobic training into the forefront in, in track and field and in distance running. Um, so I've been influenced by a lot of, uh, a lot of coaches, a lot of uh, athletes who were well before my time. And, uh, and you know, I, I think... I don't. I don't really innovate very much. I just transmit and and uh, try to understand what's what's the most useful training that because there's not a whole lot that's really new. It's just different formulations. Training is kind of like a puzzle, and there are different pieces, and you have to figure out how to assemble them in the right way. That's that sounds like a pretty good uh, analogy of it. So you talked earlier about about looking up your threshold on a chart and how that. What charts might one look at to find their threshold? So um, the charts that I usually refer to um, and that I have reproduced in the, one of the appendices to my book um, called Modern Training and Physiology, um, those charts are from Daniel's running formula. Um, there's also some people might be familiar with the Macmillan calculator on MacmillanRunning.com. I think it's their website. Um, there are other places to look up what you're what your threshold, your aerobic threshold, or your anaerobic threshold might be. You can also use these charts to figure out like what an equivalent race performance is. So you went out and you ran 18 minutes for the 5K this week, and you're racing a 10K next week. You can look up in that chart and see what what would a reasonable 10K time be. And now these charts aren't like perfect, right? Like there's nothing like people can be all over the place. But by doing you know by doing statistical analysis on people's different race performances and by like physiological tests of athletes who've run certain um, certain race times, you can get a pretty good idea of what would we expect an athlete who's run, say, 18 minutes for 5K, what would we expect his aerobic threshold would be? What would we expect his anaerobic threshold to be? What would we expect he could run a, a 10K or a mile in? Yeah, that's something that I think that a lot of people are always looking to, f- looking to know, especially... Uh, especially with the longer distances. A lot of people have run 5Ks and 10Ks and want to run half marathons, marathons, longer than that, and want to know maybe what they what exactly they can do. Yeah, and I do want to emphasize that, that charts and numbers and calculators are not perfect and they're not something that you should take as an end-all, be-all. I think one mistake a lot of people make is seeing a number in a chart and saying, I'm going to run exactly this number. Um, there's an example in my book of like a high school kid who looks up what his threshold is supposed to be and then goes out and tries to run his threshold pace and finds it's really difficult and so he just hammers it and hammers it and hammers it for the whole workout and and um, of course completely misses the purpose of the workout because the intent with 
for example, threshold training is not to run a certain number, it's to run at a certain effort level. Um, and so, say you have run some time for 5K, a chart isn't going to be able to tell you with a whole lot of certainty what your marathon is going to be or what your half marathon is going to be. And the further away you get, um, the less accurate a chart is going to be. So it's pretty easy to say you ran this for the mile, you can probably run this for the two mile. Um, it's not too bad to go 5K to 10K, but if we're talking about like 5K to marathon, there's a lot of uncertainty there. That taking out that the marathon is such a crapshoot in any case. So when you 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 talk you've talked a couple times about effort level with thresholds, I I can attest to my own training that that's a little more important than hitting the pace. How does one go about discovering what that should feel like for aerobic threshold, anaerobic threshold, or whatever it is they're trying to do? So maybe in an ideal world, you don't even need a watch or a measured course or anything, but when you're starting from nothing, you kind of need a starting point, and that's where those charts come in handy. Um, if you know roughly what your fitness is, you can look up roughly what your threshold is, and then you go out and you run it, and then you try to get in tune with that running fast but not running hard sensation that is associated with threshold training. And once you've had a lot of experience, you can get to the point where you can actually just run threshold by effort and basically disregard what your what your split times are for your workout because you know that feeling but like you said it can be hard to get to that point and it takes just a lot of practice um, and starting from a reasonable estimate of what your threshold is so what are some methods that runners of any level might might use to do that like a certain type of workout or what so there are maybe maybe four workouts that I really really like I call these, this group of workouts, high-end aerobic workouts um, because they all stimulate either your aerobic or anaerobic thresholds or both. Um, the first one is uh, something called cruise intervals, which is a pretty popular workout. Basically, it just means you're doing long repeats like thousands or 1200s or miles with very short recovery. So you might do six or eight by 1,000 meters on a track or on a measured road course and with only 60 seconds recovery. And you do that at your anaerobic threshold. That would be about, again, 92%, give or take, of your 5K. Um, you can also do continuous runs at that same speed. Some people call these tempo runs to, to uh, differentiate them from longer runs. I specifically call these anaerobic threshold runs. And this would be like 15 to 25 minutes continuously at that same speed, at that same anaerobic threshold, 92% of 5K pace. Um, there are also aerobic threshold runs, which would be longer, maybe like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, up to 60 minutes, or even further if you're a marathoner. These are at about marathon pace, 85% of your 5K, your aerobic threshold. Um, and finally, perhaps my, most, my favorite one is progression runs, which is a run where you start very, very slow, like 10-minute mile pace. And you gradually ramp it up over the course of several miles. You might do five or six miles progressive um, or up to eight or ten if you're really experienced. And you gradually, gradually increase the pace until you get to about maybe your aerobic threshold. You maintain that for a while. And then near the end, you can ramp it up to anaerobic threshold and maybe even a little faster if you feel good. So the, those four are what I call like the high-end aerobic workouts. And those are really, really good um, if you can only do one kind of workout, that's what I think you should do. Sounds pretty reasonable. I think those are all great workouts. 
to the extent you can really describe it, what 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 do these efforts feel like when you're doing them? You mentioned running running fast without running hard. Can you maybe define that? Yeah, what I always tell like the high schoolers that I coach is that these when you're doing when you're doing these high end aerobic workouts, you should be going fast but feel good. And so the the one of the reasons I like progression runs so much is because it's really easy to um, it's really easy for most people to do because you can just gradually increase. And so what I say is like in the middle like or last third of a progression run, you should be feeling like it's one of those days where you just go out for a run and you just feel really good. Um, and everyone's had these days once in a while. Sometimes they're they're kind of rare, but you feel really good, and you're just going really fast, and you just are not tired at all. You feel like you could just run forever and run as fast as you want. Um, and the progression run is kind of like an artificial way of inducing that feeling um, by intentionally starting extremely slow and then very gradually ramping the pace up and always holding back just a little bit. So the progression run is a very good introduction to that, but it's it's largely it's it's a very hard thing to articulate. But it is these threshold these high end aerobic paces are are sensations where you are not you're not like forcing it. You're not you don't have any like tension or aggression in how you're running, but you're still running fairly fast. Yeah, I think a lot of people could benefit from from learning what these kind of higher end efforts feel like. I want to change gears a little bit. You also mentioned earlier about your search for why people get hurt. So in all the reading you've done, what are a couple key reasons why people might get hurt in several things like IT band syndrome or runner's knee or shin splints or anything like that? So to some extent, individual injuries have different causal factors. The things that cause people to get Achilles tendonitis, for example, aren't necessarily the same things that cause them to get um, hip injuries. That being said, there are a few things that a lot of different injuries have in common. And the, the two things that I really emphasize, because they have broad appeal to a, a wide range of injuries, and they also have a broad base of scientific support, are stride frequency and um, hip strength. So stride frequency is just like how many steps per minute you take when you run. And in my coaching experience, I've found most people have kind of low stride frequencies. And a lot of people could probably benefit, especially injury-prone people, could benefit from increasing their stride frequency by about 5 or 10%. And a really easy way to, to check your stride frequency is just to count how many times, say, your right leg hits the ground in 30 seconds. You'll probably get a number between 38 and 45. Um, but you can multiply that by 4 because 2 times 30 seconds is a minute and you have two legs. And that gives you the number of actual steps you're taking per minute. Um, so increasing stride frequency is really good because it splits up the work of, say, running one mile in seven minutes, splits that up into more individual steps. And so each individual step is not so much stress on your body. And hip strength is really important because, especially in the, the abductors and the external rotators, which are the muscles that like pull your leg out to the side and rotate your hip externally, as the name suggests. These are really important for stabilizing your knee and having good knee mechanics um, and hip mechanics. And what studies have found is that not only do runners tend to have very weak hip muscles in general, um, but runners who get injured tend to have very, uh, very, very weak muscles, even just like who just get injured generally, not even any specific injuries. Um, but also these, these uh, hip muscle weaknesses and the biomechanical problems that are associated with them 
um, have been connected pretty directly to IT band syndrome, to patellofemoral pain syndrome or runner's knee, um, and just recently in a study published in 2013 um, to shin splints or medial tibial stress syndrome as doctors call it. Um, so hip strength is, is really, really important and like I said, a lot of runners, um, the vast majority of the high schoolers I coach, for example, have weak hips and I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because they just run and running is mostly a forward motion and the, those hip muscles that are weak have more to do with lateral side to side motion. Um, I don't know if it's because we have like relatively sedentary lifestyles. I'm not quite sure why people have very weak hip muscles, but they do. And fortunately, not only do we, does having weak muscles, uh, weak hip muscles is associated with injury, but improving your hip strength by strengthening those muscles is also associated with the recovery and is also associated with an improvement in biomechanics at the knee and at the hip. That's an interesting idea that stabilizing essentially a region of the core, which I would say a majority of people would probably say they do some kind of, for lack of a better term, core stability work. That's interesting that strengthening a part of that could, for example, prevent you from getting stress fractures in your shins. Yeah, and it's for a long time, a lot of people kind of looked looked downward at the feet and at the ankles for um, for answers on injuries. So you saw a lot of research and shoe technology on pronation, for example, um, which it turns out is a lot more nuanced than we thought. Um, and there was not a whole lot of attention on what's going on in the hips and in the pelvis. And it is true that a lot of runners do what they would call core strength. Um, but I want to emphasize that what we think of as core is mostly like abs and back. And those two are actually not, there is not a whole lot of research that supports doing abdominal strength, doing sit-ups and crunches and that sort of stuff. If you're going to do some core strength, you want to make sure it absolutely includes your hip muscles, that, that core below your waist, the things that actually stabilize your pelvis. Um, and, uh, and I don't want to say that like, sit-ups or back strength is, is bad, but there's not nearly as much research supporting that as there is that hip strength. That's interesting. Uh, there's an, an interview with Arthur Lydiard out there. Arthur Lydiard, for those of you who don't know, a very famous uh, track and distance running coach from New Zealand who led a f- bunch of guys from his neighborhood to Olympic medals in the 1960s. But he talks about how strengthening the, the ab muscles, in, in fact, might hurt you. I think he was a little off, but it's interesting how just how on he was about it, even though he didn't know it at the time. Yeah, and, and Arthur Lydiard was not a big fan of strength in general. And and uh, while he did contribute a lot to what we know about training methods, we have also moved on to. So you see a lot of elite runners doing, like lifting weights and doing all sorts of other things that Lydiard would have said, no, don't do that, that's bad. Um, but having having that scientific approach to injuries now um, is has been really helpful because we've been able to actually identify. We don't have to just use like you know common sense or or training wisdom. We can actually do studies, do biomechanical and like uh, epidemiological studies on runners and injuries and their specific causes for different things. So we can provide definitive answers for like should you do this, should you do that, um, instead of just uh, going by by what people done in the past yeah that's i think that's definitely a uh, a benefit of living in a in the modern age so we've gotten a little off track um first thing you mentioned that people can do to help uh with their injuries is increase their stride frequency first of all 
you said that most people, when they do that 30-second test, hit somewhere between 30 and 45 times per per 30 seconds. Why is it, you said, and you said why it's valuable to have a higher stride frequency, how can one go about trying to increase that? So a lot of people get fixated on, on a specific number, usually it's 180 because Jack Daniels brought that up. That would be 45 in our units. Um, but usually I just try to get people to bump up just a little bit, just try to be a little bit quicker, take a little bit shorter steps. Um, and it's not something you can just fix overnight, increasing your stride frequency. It's something that takes a long time um, to see significant improvements in. But what's good about it is that you can do it in a gradual, stepped fashion. It's not like trying to change how you run. Maybe you know some people change from heel striking to forefoot striking, hoping to avoid injuries. Um, it's not something that's just a binary, like you do one thing or you do another. You can say you, you go out and you do that 30-second check and you're at 38. Um, you can gradually move yourself to 39, to 40, to 41 over the course of several weeks. It doesn't have to be like instantly um, you're, you're way, way higher. Um, another useful trick you can do is actually running, if you're running with a, a friend or a teammate uh, who has a little bit of a higher stride frequency, you can just try to match um, what their stride frequency is, and it'll feel a little weird at first. But yeah, it's, a, it's nice because you can just do it very gradually. Is this something you've done on your own? Like yeah, when I when I came into college, I was at I think like forty two ish. And now the the actual number you're going to be at is going to be dependent to some extent on um, how fast you're running. Um, but for for like most of the numbers I'm setting here are mostly relevant for like high school college runners who run six minute to eight minute miles. If you're outside of that range, it's not going to be quite as relevant. But and it uh, but again, I was at about forty two and it took me three four or five months to move up to like 44 to 45, which is what I've been at um, ever since then. Where did, and so you got this idea in the beginning of college? Yeah, one of the stride frequency is one thing that my college coach was uh, was a big fan of because he's read Jack Daniels' uh, Running Formula and Daniels talks about it in there. And this was a little bit before like all these studies came out on why stride frequency is actually a good idea. But luckily for me, my college coach was on that thing at least spot on in terms of uh, what's useful for avoiding injury. That's cool. So uh, moving on to hip strength, what are, uh, what are some things people can specifically do to strengthen their hips? There are a few exercises. Some of them are pretty familiar, like side leg lifts where you're laying on your side. You, do, um, you can just look these up on the Internet, I'm sure. Uh, the clamshell exercise is pretty common too. Both of those are, are almost ubiquitous in, in like rehab programs. Um, there are also a few more advanced exercises um, like uh, back bridges or I call them glute bridges where you're using your glutes to like stabilize your pelvis. And it's kind of hard to describe these obviously. But they're all basically sort of like physical therapy type exercises. They're not, they're not like big like weight room like Nautilus machine things. Um, they're really easy, um, and they don't really require any equipment. The only hip strength exercise I do that requires any equipment is just, uh, just needs a, a TheraBand, a, like an elastic, uh, stretchy band that you wrap around your legs and you like shuffle from side to side. So these hip strength exercises, what's great about them is that you don't need fancy equipment. You don't need a whole lot of space. I live in a really small apartment, but I have plenty of room to do the hip strength stuff that I need to do. Um, and they don't take very much time either. I mean, it takes like five minutes a day. Um, 
and you're and you're uh, really improving your resilience uh, towards injury. Yeah, for those of you out there, this is something that um, for those of you out there who follow the Olympics, most people know that uh, British runner Mo Farah and American runner Galen Rupp were first and second in the 10,000 meters in 2012 at the Olympics, and this is something that their strength and conditioning coach, whose name is Dave McHenry, really harps on all the time, and. Uh, there was actually an article about it in one of the running magazines, I forget which, uh, f- around that time. And uh, it's interesting that, that you came up with the, you ha- end up with the same thing. Probably not coincidence, but still. Yeah, and, and people think about like strength and like big muscles and stuff, but really these, these muscles that are really important, these hip external rotators and abductors, like the gluteus medius, the gluteus minimus, these are sort of the lesser known siblings of the gluteus maximus, which is the big, huge hip muscle, which extends your, your hip and drives you forward when you're running. And all runners have really strong glute max muscles, usually, um, because they spend a lot of time moving forward. But these, the, the glute minimus, the glute medius, they're really small injuries. They're not very big. And so um, it's not like, you know, you don't have to, like, like I said, it doesn't require a lot of equipment. And it's not like, you can be a pretty pretty skinny runner like you've seen Mo Farah you've seen Galen Rupp they're not like big jacked super strong guys but I can guarantee you that their hip strength is incredible that their hip strength is, is impeccable and that's part of what keeps them healthy and actually uh, Mo Farah and Galen Rupp the stories are that they can the, the things they can do in the weight room are actually quite quite incredible but uh, beside the point so uh, I'm assuming you've in, you've integrated a lot of these at least these I'm sure these two concepts into your own coaching um, how has that worked out so far have the have your high school runners responded well to it have any not any uh, success or horror stories in particular well fingers crossed knock on wood we had um, our well, I think one of the reasons our cross-country season went so well this uh, fall was because all of our top guys stayed healthy we had you know maybe a few guys with like sore muscles or something but no major injuries, no stress fractures, no no like serious setbacks, and that um, and that really laid the groundwork for our success. Because if you want to make big improvements as a runner, you don't need like insane, amazing training. All you need is consistency. If you have training that's pretty good, but over a long period of time, you can stay healthy, um, stay uh, stay fit, and just train consistently over months and years. You're going to become a really good runner. Um, so hopefully, again, fingers crossed, um, this will continue to keep the high schoolers that I coach, uh, keep them healthy and keep them improving. Any, uh, no, so no, no horror stories? No yet? horror stories yet. No. Great. So again, shifting gears, uh, your, your bio on your website and your book indicate that, uh, you state that you've, you've trained at a pretty high level in your lifetime. There was some mention of hundred plus mile weeks. What would you do if you could go back? Kind of that classic question and do college again. Well, I, two things. First, again, consistency is really important. And yes, like I had a lot of a lot of really big weeks, a lot of stretches of really great training. But there are also certainly times where I was overreaching, pushing myself too hard, um, not giving myself enough chance to recover, and uh, rushing into things too much. So I would, certainly would have been more patient, more gradual in getting into things. Um, and I also would have had more more modulation in training. So yes, like I would uh, I would like to still do that like large like big workouts, long long runs and high mileage weeks, but I would also want to 
I, if I could go back, I would have taken more recovery. So we used to do, in college, we used to do aerobic threshold runs. Most of the guys on the team would do six miles, seven miles. A few guys would do eight. My junior year of college, I was doing 10 miles. And so two miles up and two miles uh, to cool down, that's a 14-mile workout. Plus, I would run in the morning. So that would be like a 16, 17, 18, 19-mile day. And what I should have done is the day after that, just take it really easy, run eight miles, and, and that's it. Um, but, of course, what I would do is I would get up and run really far that next morning. I would run again the evening after that, do another hard workout. I had a lot of weekends where we'd race on Saturday. I would do you know two-plus-hour long run on Sunday and then come back and do a big mileage day and a really hard workout on Monday. And if I could go back, I would have put more recovery in there. Like, I don't think it's a mistake to be pushing yourself by doing going further and, and faster in your workouts. But you need to understand, and what I did not understand in college, is that the more you stress your body, the more you need to recover. So the bigger, the longer, the faster the workouts you do, the longer, and, uh, the longer your recovery periods need to be afterwards. Oh, the things you think you can do when you're 19. <laughs> I, you and I are pretty. I think you and I are pretty much the same age. Uh, so I, I understand. <laughs> Not quite the same thing, but I did, I did some pretty stupid stuff too, when I was in college running. So with, uh, with their training, I think a lot of runners would agree that aren't particularly interested in, you know, exactly how the aerobic system is working in their body or the anaerobic system and ATP and the Krebs cycle and all that kind of thing you learn in high school biology or maybe college biology and never want to touch again. But what are a few physiological things that runners would, would be well served to know about their training in their bodies? Well, I think the first thing would be the dynamics of, of lactate and how, how running at different speeds relative to your fitness um, affects how far you can run at that speed. Um, it's really important to understand that the, the like your effort level in relation to pace is not a linear effect it's like an exponential effect so understanding you don't need to dive right into like the biochemistry of of um, lactate and of you know all that stuff but just understanding that lactate builds up over time and the rate that it builds up is dependent on the speed that you're running at and then there are there are certain ranges of speeds where you can sustain your pace for a very long time or infinitely in theory. Um, and there are certain speeds where your fatigue builds up very, very, very quickly. Um, and understanding the give and take there can be really, really helpful because knowing how that works lets you run those high-end aerobic workouts a lot more effectively if you understand what the purpose is that you're trying to achieve in your workouts. I think that's really important. Um, Another thing, again, is just your body's ability to recover. You had, People don't really like to think about this, but your ability to adapt to workouts um, is proportional to your fitness. So if you're just starting out, you really can't do really big, long workouts because you're just, you're just going to be tearing yourself down. You have a limited capacity to recover. Um, and if you push beyond that capacity, that workout doesn't make any sense to do. Uh, now, that your capacity to recover does increase over time. As you get stronger, as you get more fit, as you get older and more experienced, you can handle more mileage, longer workouts, more intense workouts, that sort of thing. So you'll read about like elite runners doing these ridiculous workouts, but what people don't understand is that you're not going to become like them if you start doing their workouts. They're only able to do those workouts now because they're an elite runner. 
Um, and like back when they weren't as good, they weren't able to handle as much either. So understanding that your, your ability to recover is limited and you need to operate within the confines of those limits to improve is sort of a counterintuitive thing, but I think it's really important to understand. I agree. And going back to, to really being able to feel those, those efforts and those paces will, will help, I think will help a lot of people to not overreach and not hurt themselves because I think you can hurt your I think most would agree you can push yourself really really hard and you're not and maybe you don't physically hurt yourself but you could also be just shot and you can't really do anything of substance for days and then you've essentially lost training days yeah and what I tell what I tell my high school runners is that improvement is not about training hard it's about training smart you could go out and you could just like run all out 400s every single day or local high school track and you'd be training really, really hard, but it wouldn't be smart and you wouldn't get any better because of it, at least not very much. Um, so you can't just have this aggressive, like, grinded out mindset to everything in training. You need to think about, like, what is appropriate for me at my fitness level and what's going to get me to the next level in, uh, as a runner. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier uh, about your book, Modern Training and Physiology for Middle and Long Distance Runners. Um, briefly summarize that book for those who haven't read it. So it's a it's a pretty short, about ninety pages, I think. Um, introduction to the practical aspects of um, exercise physiology for a runner. Um, it talks about those those things that I think are really important: your ability to recover, um, lactate and threshold, and that sort of stuff. VO two max. It explains that, um, but ex- but it looks at all these things in the like through the lens of how is this going to be useful to me in training so i talk about the threshold like lactate threshold i talk about vo2 max and then immediately afterwards we talk about how do you actually apply these ideas in training and how is this useful to you as a runner um and so it's mostly geared towards high school college runners um but i want i designed it so that even a complete novice even someone who's training for marathons and has been running for 30 years, um, could hopefully at least learn uh, learn a few things and uh, get something out of it. But it focuses on how do you structure a season, how do you how do you run well, how do you race well. Um, I try to I sort of have it be like a like a one-stop shop for a like ambitious high school or college runner who really wants to know like how do I train? That's and that's the question it tries to answer. How should you train? And how, what, what kind of benefit would say, like a ma- like a masters runner who's just trying to do, just trying to do marathons? What, what might they get out of your book? I think there are definitely some things. What do you think? I think that, um, you know, if you've been around for a while and you've, you'd probably know a lot about training already. You probably know a lot about workouts already. What I would hope that a really experienced runner would get out of my book is my philosophy of training, my approach to running, the idea that. The way to make real improvements is to learn to run faster instead of just running harder. To learn how to be efficient, how to approach workouts with the right mentality, how to approach training with the right mentality. And I think I think that um, what I have in my book is something that you don't you don't really find in uh, other training manuals. I agree. When I uh, I purchased it and read it in preparation for this interview and. Uh it was definitely a lot more it was a lot more practical application of different training concepts than a lot of than other 
books on training I've read, and there have been a few. Um, speaking of which, for those who maybe read your book and want to go a little bit deeper into it, what are some books that you recommend that people could start out with? Um, well, I brought up Daniel's Running Formula earlier um, because I refer to it a lot. It's got really pretty solid training schedules and um, more interesting for me, it really, really useful charts on all sorts of things. So threshold stuff like I mentioned, but also say you miss, you get sick and you miss a week of running. There's a chart in there for like how, how much fitness did you lose? And this really useful. Um, so Daniel's Running Formula is very good. And then two lesser-known books that I really like are first uh, Take the Lead by Scott Simmons and Will Freeman, um, which details a little bit of a different perspective on how do you structure your seasons and how do you approach uh, approach training. Um, very interesting, very, like, kind of uh, a different take on traditional, especially on peaking and, like, how do I race my, how do I run well at the end of the season? Um Scott Simmons and Will Freeman's ideas on that have very strongly influenced my own beliefs on that. Um, and finally, another book I really, really like is uh, Run Strong by Kevin Beck, which is really just a collection of different essays um, by different coaches and physical therapists and nutritionists and stuff. And it's all about different things that you can do to improve your running, improving strength, improving um, race preparation, um, improving your workouts, understanding how to structure your career long term. There's all sorts of really great stuff in that book. Um, so those are three that I would recommend. Oh, I should add, uh, Steve Magnus, I have not read his book yet, but it just came out, I think, yesterday. So I should, I've read a lot of Steve Magnus's material on his website, um, and I'm very, very excited for his book. So um, i got to recommend that, too. Yeah, we're hoping to have, uh, hoping to interview Steve fairly soon here about that book. I'm uh, I'm intrigued as well. Steve Magnus, for those of you who don't know, is a is currently an assistant track coach at the University of Houston, which is his alma mater, and he also worked with the Nike Oregon Project, Galen Rupp and Mo Farah, and their and their teammates from about 2010 through the 2012 Olympics. And his 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 website, The Science of Running, has been has been around for a while and has a lot of neat a lot of really neat articles about different things and he always has a bit of a different take on all kinds of things so we're yeah we're kind of looking forward to that i just wanted you to go a little bit a little bit more into take the lead because i know from my own experience i've seen run strong and i've seen daniel's running formula in a bookstore in the running section but i've i've never seen take the lead i haven't have read it but i kind of had to go looking for it what, 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 why specifically would you recommend that one? So when most people think about, like, I want to peak at the end of my season to race really well at my, you know, conference championships or at the section meet or whatever, um, um, it's, it's usually, you know, the traditional approach is, like, I'm going to decrease my mileage and I'm going to do more intensity and that sort of thing. Um but Take the Lead has a different approach, and it makes sense from the outside. And they basically just say, keep doing what you've been doing, because you've been you know, doing your normal training throughout the season, um, and you've been presumably improving. So why would you change everything at the end of the season and hope to, hope to run better? Um, and this really resonated with me, because I had a lot of experiences in high school and in college where I would be, I would do the traditional peaking thing, cut down my volume, start doing higher intensity workouts, blah, 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 and I wouldn't run very well at the end of the season. I wouldn't run very well in the most important races. Um, 
and take the leads approach makes a lot more sense to me now, um, and I've had a lot more success taking that kind of approach. So in uh, in take the lead, it's more about like building up your training gradually throughout the season. So by the end of the season, you're doing basically the most mileage, the most difficult workouts that you'll be doing, and that's a little bit of an inversion of of how uh, how it's usually done. Agreed. So um, last thing, because I want to let you go pretty soon here. Um, your bio on your website uh, mentioned that you didn't get to run for kind of a while after college from a lot of stuff that had caught up with you, a lot of injuries and things. Uh, how's your own running going right now? And you have um, any race plans? <laughs> yes, actually, I will. Uh, I have. So after college, um, I had hip surgery. I had a very long rehab period after that. Um, Ouch. And uh, very, very gradually getting back into training. And I have actually been racing in the last few months. I set a lifetime PR on the mile a few weeks ago, and uh, I'm racing tomorrow night at the University of Minnesota. Actually, well, very nice. What do you? What distance are you running? Uh, I'm assuming mm-hmm. indoor track. It's been a bit of a brutal winter in Minnesota there. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, it's been awfully. In fact, it's still snowing right now. Um, <laughs> so I've been getting on the indoor track and toughing it out outside. I'll be running the mile tomorrow and giving myself a little bit of an indoor season. So February. That that makes perfect sense to me so um john i want to let you go pretty quick here uh any final words of advice for our listeners out there well um again uh, i think the number my number one message to most people is the most important thing in in training is consistency and the most important thing in running is learning to go faster instead of running harder and then that's where your big improvements come is when you learn to separate those two things learn to separate running fast from running hard. Arthur Litter actually used to say, the winner, the winner of the race is not the one who runs the hardest, it's the one who runs the fastest. That, along with his, uh, you have to train, not strain. Exactly. Which makes a lot of sense, and yet is very counterintuitive to a lot of, uh, to a lot of us runners. Yep, and easy to forget. Yes, indeed. Well, John, thanks very much, and... Uh, We'll uh, we'll let you go and have a great uh, have a great rest of the day and good luck in your race tomorrow night. Yep, thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. If you have a question about what you heard or feedback you'd like to give, please don't hesitate. You can leave a written comment on the episode either on our website or through our iTunes page, or you can leave us a voice message. The number for that is six one seven three five six seven nine six nine. We'll answer as many of the questions as we can in one of our monthly Q and A sessions. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening.